Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a fifth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and a multiple-time world champion. Welcome to the show, the legendary Sanjay Ribeiro. Hello, sir. Well, it's a pleasure to be back, talk to you guys. It's an amazing day here in Austin, Texas. Sunny and hot and ready to roll. Hey, that's a good combo. That's a good combo. Yeah, last time we talked was during lockdown in 2020. Since then, you had moved to Austin, Texas, opened Six Blades. Can you kind of go into what led you to doing that? Uh, you know, I've been sharing a school with my brother for a very long time where we, we ran, you know, Hibero Jiu-Jitsu and then the University of Jiu-Jitsu in San Diego. And as, you know, I felt that my career was, you know, was about to go to the end of it, you know, time to retire and look to different ventures. I always wanted to own my own place. You know, I love California, but, you know, I start to just look at numbers and lifestyle. Uh, also, I travel so much. It just made sense, like Texas being central. It just looking at Ninch. Uh, I have a really good friend here in Austin, Paulo Coelho. He owns Grace Sumaita here. Also, Robbie Rabati. So they spoke a lot of great things about it. I love the city when I first visited, and that's an easy move. My plan was to move 2021, and uh, in a way, lockdown just made it, things go a little early, and that's how it happened, you know. And uh, now. We rebranded, you know, Ribeiro Jiu-Jitsu is our style. It's always the flow pressure finish. Six Blades is our school, is our, is our brand now, our team. And I'm super happy, super excited with this venture. The school is being open for only a year, and I'm loving it. Uh, that's I love hearing that, though, man. That's amazing to hear. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask you about that, too, because in 2022, that last ADCC run, going into retirement, someone who has been doing this their whole life and an elite level, one of the greatest to ever do a competition. What is that transition like, you know, switching gears from competitive to retirement? What is that like for you? Like people don't understand about my career. I have never been a full-time athlete. You know, I have always taught Jiu-Jitsu when I moved to the U.S. in 2002 and I lived in Toledo, Ohio. I owned a school with Chris Blanky, and then we always had the association. I have always been a teacher. So teaching was a big uh, part of my skill development. You know, it has always been this way. I think being an athlete and a competitor was almost like my side job. Okay. You know, yeah. and for me, you know, I've been competing since some white belt. You know, I competed in my first tournament. was like an in-house in my house. Be competing for 30 years, 32 years. And for me... Competition has never been about winning, only winning. Of course, we always want to win. It's always been about skill, you know, develop a skill, prove a point, dominate my opponents and things like that, you know. And uh was no brainer. I have always not competed so much because the time when I was, you know, in my prime, that wasn't like today, you know, you have yeah. like 55 tournaments a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, you yeah. have like so many professional events. My time, there was a time that I only competed worlds. I didn't yeah. do anything else. And of course, if I want to build something and help people, the purpose of like be business owners or coaching, you have to just change the focus. I retired from ADCC. I think I helped build that sport. Oh, you know, my that. first ADCC trial was to 1999. So I've been doing this for a long time. I never had a, a no-gi career besides ADCC. I only competed in ADCC pretty much as a no-gi person. I have uh, 43 ADCC fights. I'm yeah. the record 
in ADCC matches, you know? Wow. Also Worlds, been competing since 1997. And for me, it will be kind of like selfish and almost like egocentric to like go and still try to be the champion. And I don't know. It's just, it's just that now my world championship is different. Like I said, it's not about making money. It's not about doing that. It's about learning the skill during the process. Building champions is, is building businesses. Is be available to people to help them with whatever industry they want to go. It's learning about marketing, learning about digital marketing, learning about all of this. So pretty much you're going to take my mindset as a, a competitor that I wanted to dominate. I want to learn the skill. I, I want to understand the game. Now is what I'm going to do. You know, I spend most of my time developing the teaching methodology, watching competition, watching the white belts, watching the blue belts, why make them win, why they don't win, and eventually apply that in my own team. No rush, no rush, yeah. just just good times. I love, yeah, so you segue those energies into that. I love that. Yeah, it's about focus, you know. Yeah. Uh, for many years, I was so focused, like I was dividing my focus between the school and between competition. And that was a point that like, you know, now for me to be a competitor, I need to be active. And I'm 42 years old. I don't recover as much. You know what I mean? So right. I, start, I did what I had to do. I fought a lot for free. Now it's time for this generation to make some money yeah. out of my efforts. And no brainer. I remember uh, even the world this year, I was there. No like feeling of like, oh my God, you know. Okay. It's just like for me, like to go back and think, of course, me as a fighter, I know I can beat anyone in the right moment. But right. for me to be in that environment now is just too much. I have to be competing. I have to do opens. I have to be active. I have to be doing many things to do that. And right now I appreciate training. I'm appreciate the different skill development and it's time to be world champion in different areas. That's amazing. Wow. Great mindset too. Yeah. And the other thing I'd like you to go into this aspect of competition, because some people love to compete. Some people are scared to compete, whatever the case may be. It's a, like you just mentioned a second ago, it's a personal journey. You can still get good at whatever, jujitsu, MMA, kickboxing, whatever. But there's something about competition. It's about you. It's a personal journey. That person you're fighting is helping you improve you. Can you kind of go into that concept? Because people get too much caught up in just the friction of a fight, and that's not the right mindset. Well, yeah. Like I said, I have never been a very competitive person. Mm -hmm. I was always curious what type of person am I going to become within the process. And that's mostly what I tell my hobbies, right? I say, look, it's fun to train. But it's also fun to put some goals, you know, like to lose some weight, to maybe get your diet in shape. You know, I have a lot of students that they never thought about competing. And then once they got into that competition mode, now they live a better lifestyle. They think twice about eating shitty food. They go and they, they train a little more. They watch more videos. They come to more classes, you know what I mean? Because I don't want to burn them out. They're not professionals, right? right. They're, they just want to test themselves into that environment. So I think the first thing that a student needs to understand is about testing the skills. Nobody wants to lose. I've never taken away the idea of winning. We were there to win, right? We were there to like see right. if you can win something. But in Jiu-Jitsu, you cannot win without a skill. Right. St strategic skill, strength skill, condition, whatever skill you have, that will give you an edge. And people say, oh, how can I get better competition? 
competing. There's no other way. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's no other. It's very specific. Competition is very specific and kind of go back to the idea of my career. Like for me right now, if I wanted to compete at that level, I need to be in competition shape. Not in shape as an athlete, but my mindset, the timing, the speed. What do I do? Like even at, at the, the world that I retire, I was a little confused. Do I warm up now? I don't warm up now. You know, <laughs> I was kind of confused even, you know. Uh, yeah. So I think a lot of those things is like, like I tell my guys, not about the competitions, about what type of human being you're going to come out of that, that experience, you know. So I take the word competition out of the table and I call it experience. And I think once they understand that challenge, they got to face it with a little bit less pressure, you know? Yes. And also in the other side, because I am who I am, they want to impress me. So it's also another layer that I have to like make them understand. I say, you don't have to make me proud. You make me proud by committing to something that's going to challenge you. And that's where I'm happy. The result, I could care less if they win or lose. Right. If they lose, yeah. great. Now we have a lot of things to talk about. Why you lost? Was that a skill? Was that emotional? Was that something that made you double gas yourself? Right. right. So and it's fun. It's just fun to explore all these variants, psychological variants, physical variants, and of course, if they're ready or not to be a champion or be a professional for that matter. Yeah, and another factor too is like when you were in your competition years, I like to ask this to every person that comes on the show, what did an average week look like for you? So like jujitsu, fitness, cardio, rest, recovery, what did an average week look like for you? Well, average week would be at least like eight sessions in that week of jujitsu, right? I don't, it's different, right? Because in my time, my prime was a bit different, right? Like nowadays, Nowadays, they are athletes, right? That's all they do. I never had that gift. Like, okay, I'm just going to sit and train. Yeah, yeah. Because I always taught jiu-jitsu. So teaching jiu-jitsu was also part of my training because I'm doing, you know, brain work, right? right. And sometimes when I was close to a competition, I would teach my students something that my opponents would be doing. So that was okay. studying, you know? <laughs> so I used my students as a laboratory. Remember when I moved to Toledo, Ohio, I didn't have many people to train. So I start to mold everyone's game based on my opponents, right? If I had a long guy, I would get like a long guy and teach them the game that I was going to be fighting against. So it, it works like this. So for me, I would train and then I would still teach, which is also part of training, but more in a mental level, right? Instead of drilling, I would be developing that type of skill. And then, of course, a couple of days a week, I would do conditioning and stuff. So I would pretty much train every day. I would vary the intensity. Of course, I don't believe that training a lot is right. You need to train correctly. The volume will come when timing needs it. But you got to make sure you understand when to slow down, when pick back up, things like that. Listen to your body. And one definitely one thing that now the world is all about it, and I'm going to have always been about it, recovery. That one thing that I learned about my brother is like, you know, if you cannot train, if you're tired here, get rest. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not yeah. just your body, but your mind, you know, because if you're stressed, cortisol levels, all right. those things are messing you up. You know what I mean? So 
it's important for you to understand that the rest is not only physical, but mental. Because if you're not rested mentally, you'll not be able to coordinate those emotions with your body. And then you get hurt. You overtrain. Because overtrain is part of your mind. It's always on your mind. And then when it goes to the physical, and then it's already too late. And then you're probably wow. depressed. We have a case of one of the girls, one super champion. She had like a breakdown. She had to go to like wow. a spa for three days, get off her phone because it's just too much. I wow. imagine nowadays, you know, social media, trash oh. talking, you know, so much information on this. You know, you <laughs> open your phone and then you see your opponent doing like a flying triangle and someone like, <laughs> scared. You know, it's, I think it's way harder today than nowadays. We had a little less distractions. So I have always been huge. Steve Maxwell was the first one that introduced cold showers to me. First thing oh. in the morning, get a cold shower. I'm like, are you crazy? No, believe me. That's how you do it. Plus kettlebells, functional training to jiu-jitsu. So I've always been in that level. So average week, a lot of training. Depends on the week, of course. There are weeks more load, less load, more intense, less intensity. If there's too much load, is less intensity. If there's more intensity, is less load. Play with that. A lot of massages, a lot of recovery, great food, and a good movie. I am so happy you brought that up. That's the thing I always follow up with that is the recovery side. You know, they focus so much on the training aspect, not the recovery side. That's just of, if not more important, is that recovery. Well, like I remember not too long, I read that the conditioning coming on the rest is not how much you do, but how much you can save for the next one. Mm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. if you're not recovered, how can you have performance? Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it doesn't, it doesn't add out. The numbers don't add out. I'm tired. I have a rough night. I sleep bad. Even, even if you have nightmares, like we have to the point that like you wake up and then you measure your heartbeat. And then like Steve and Saulo, Steve would ask me like, Hey, did you have a nightmare today? So, yeah, you know, my dream was very vivid. You know what I mean? You don't recover in your sleep. You know what I mean? Wow. Your, your dreams have to match what's happening, you know? And sometimes like, man, but I slept eight hours. But, oh, eight hours, you're dreaming like you're drowning. That's <laughs> drastic. Yeah. Again, the brain, the brain picks that up. So it's important to understand all those factors. A good coach will always think about this. Yeah. Every time I see one of my guys tired, I'm like, what's going on? You didn't wake up. Did you have a dream? Did you have sex too late like, last night? Right. Like all those things, they involve, right? Because like, for example, if you have sex too late on the night, now it takes you some time to like, you know, slow down and your body going to rest and things like this. Did you watch a crazy movie? Did you watch a documentary? Was a comedy or was, <laughs> yeah. a, was a serial killer movie, you know? So all those things, I think they, the way you feed your brain, it, it affects a lot the way your body responds to it. So important, right? Uh, the mind, body, spirit's always a factor. And another thing you brought up kind of a little bit too is world champions. I think there's this false idea that you have to, to be a world champion. You have to only train with world champions. That's not true. I mean, you even say you have your students... You pick the guy. If I'm going against a linky guy, I'll get a linky guy. That's such an important factor too, right? You don't, it doesn't have to be this world champion to train. Well, quality of training is always important. But the problem sometimes in a room full of champions is that every champion have a need, uh, right? 
So it's important to understand that sometimes you as the number one, you are also a training partner, right? And I think that's where people have to understand. For example, Victor Hugo, he's 265 pounds. I'm not matched for him. The only time I can match him nowadays is if we do partial sparring. And then that's, that's when I get some sort of advantage over him because we start in positions. You know what I mean? And Felipe is a rising star. Took third at Worlds this year in one of the, the hardest divisions. But like I said, it's about the group quality, right? Like, are we training to an objective? And even in my right. case, with Lovato, for example, even though I was training for myself, I would train for him too. Mm-hmm. You know, I would take like one or two training sessions to be a good training partner, to play a game of the person he would go against. I would play, I would change my strategies to be a good partner. I'm a staller now. I'm a crazy guy now. You know what I mean? So it's important the ego and the selfishness to be on check if you're in a room full of like too many champions. One way or another, you're going to be tough. That's That's for sure. You know what I mean? But definitely, I think, I think like champion is, is just like a general way to say it, but I think you have to have quality training partners that will use their skills in a strategic way that's going to benefit you. Train hard, anyone can train hard. Train correctly, I think that's something that has to be, you know, measured. Like sometimes when Victor Hugo is just doing what he does best, you know, say, hey, change the game, play something else, develop a different game, put yourself in a situation where you suck, where you suck at, right? For example, like I'm the type of guy, I can play any game, right? I can play any game. I can teach any game, but am I black belt in any game? No, right? Some days I want to, all right, I want to suck at training today. I'll play spider guard, right? Because it's not my A game. Mm. I'll be sucking at it. I'll be recovering. I'm never ahead, but I'm developing my skill. I'm helping my partner at the same time that I'm developing my game. Now I'm a tough purple belt in spider guard. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> And again, you know, you can't be great in low levels. You know, like Victor Hugo, he has a very, very like distinctive game that every time he kind of goes back to that, especially right now that we back into skill development, not in training hard. Like, you know what I mean? We're going to start to pick that up by August for his Grand Prix mm-hmm. in Vegas. But right now it's back to skill development. He's back at the gym, lifting weights, you know, going back to, you know, just foundation training you know, body development, just being a better athlete. You know what I mean? And then once things start to like narrow down and then we get more specific, we're going to study the tapes. We're going to play games that he's going to face and things like that. And then also his conditioning training has to be in pair with what I'm trying to accomplish. Got it. Yeah, that game plan and the training is always moving forward correctly. I'm going to play a little video clip of which we can talk over and please do couple highlights here. One of your big highlights, and this is amazing win over Hodger Gracie. Put us in your shoes right here. Boom. You won. What was that feeling like? I actually never watched that fight until the pandemic, right? I, oh, uh, really? I had so many mistakes. I was more worried about the crown than the army lock. Everybody thinks I tap, but Hodger knows. You know what I mean? He knows. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe 
whatever, 10 seconds later, he could have broken my arm. Yeah, maybe. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. he's a gentleman. He knows. People say, oh, he tapped. So what happened is I was, I was looking at that video. Yeah. And I was like, dude, what am I doing? I was looking at the crowd. I was making faces. I always pay automatic karma. <laughs> you know, and as I'm looking to the crowd, Roger freaking Gracie is climbing the arms on you and try to take your arm, you know. So as I'm going like this, and, and then the referee said, Paro, you know what I mean? He, he went, and then he let go, right? As he let go, I just touched his leg, like let go of my arm. Oh. But it is what it is. He knows. I know. That was an amazing fight. I keep looking at my mistakes. I'm like, what did I do? There's like, there was one reset. There was in a really good position. Yeah. And I changed the position. I don't know why, because I was so excited. And he swept me and I complicated the fight. You know, that year was a complicated year. You know, I had a, not too many people know, but I was in bed for 14 days before that event. Wow. I had a back issue. I had like a doctor coming in. I couldn't even wow. use the bathroom correctly. Uh, there was a lot going on that on that week. I messed up my neck in the semifinal, the open. I still came back the next day to do my division. So I went through a lot to be able to compete at that level with Roger, the GOAT. You yeah. can say anything about anyone. He's the best. Yeah. And yeah, I just felt that like a lifetime of work really yeah. came out that moment because I beat him in 2006, last minute, whatnot. Closed out Rio de Janeiro, no more there. And then, uh, yeah, I just, just get to beat him again. And I think that was very special. But I kind of sucked into to stay focused on the fight. You know, like I said, I never watched the fight until the pandemic where all my students, we did a Zoom class. And I said, hey, can you comment that fight? Took me almost two hours to go over 10 minutes. <laughs> I was like, what am I really doing here? Why am I doing this? Why this setup? And I would come back and guys are laughing and, and they're all having beers and stuff. <laughs> We, it was funny, you know, so <laughs> that was cool. Like I said, I almost paid the price for being an idiot right? You know? and, <laughs> I, and I'm okay to say that. I was like, look, because the crowd was yelling shit to me. And I, Oh yeah, it was a passionate moment. That's for sure. Yeah, they're like <laughs> talking shit and yelling things that are rated R, you know, only Portuguese. And I was like looking at them, making uh, faces. Yeah. They're like, I'm making faces and Hodge is climbing to your arm. Yeah. You know, and I was <laughs> yeah. like. And then for one second, I say, fuck, dude, Jacare time, you know, I'm oh, going oh. to let it break, you know. But oh. yeah, so like I said, he knows, I know. He went for it and he did it. And then the referee said, paro, and then he let go. You know what I mean? He's a gentleman. He could have gone a little harder. But once the thing stopped, was right at the moment, I tap his leg, like let go of my arm. And yeah, just a special moment where I got to share with my students. And uh, yeah, that's amazing. You know, you know, not a double goal. Yeah, that was an amazing moment. And the other thing you mentioned right there, not many people from the outside looking in, they don't know, like, when you go fight, you're not always this fresh fighter and injury-free. Like, you, a lot of times, most times, you're going out there, you have some sort of it's, ailment. It's impossible. It's impossible to be 100%. Yeah. Like, it, it, there's always something. Like, there's always something on the day of the competition is, yeah. like, decides to hurt. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a tweaky knee, it's a, it's a hip, it's a shoulder, it's a neck, it's your back. Sometimes your recovery is not there. You feel like crap that day. Actually, if you're 100%, that means <laughs> maybe you're not training off. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, you know, like I said, it's the life of a fighter. It's still a contact sport. A lot of contact, a lot of pushing, a lot of shoving, a lot of twisting, a lot of squeezing. And it's just normal. 
to have something going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And some guys have a little harder, sometimes not. But uh, yeah, nobody's 100% ever. And I'll give you one more clip here too, because it, it was an amazing match. And that was against Marcelo Garcia in the gi. And he had this beautiful back take coming up right here. Well, the infamous Shanji sweep, right? It's a flower sweep that people mm -hmm. call Shanji sweep. You mm -hmm. know, Marcelo, another GOAT. This guy, man, he's amazing. One thing about that fight, man, I was scared. Tell oh, you going something. into it? Yeah, Hoshi scares me. Like, a lot of people scared me. Braulio, like, nowadays, I don't think no one would scare me anyway. But the thing is, Marcelo always had this thing of, like, getting to the back and finishing. I'm how, have I always been known for my back defense since mm. back then, right? So... I won my semifinal, and then Marcelo was supposed to do semifinal. And he took the guy's back, right? At the moment, I was like, ah, whatever. I'll fight Marcelo. I'll close guard on him, and I'll, I'll figure out a way to win, right? But his opponent's face of panic. <laughs> like, when Marcelo, like, the guy's eyes are like this. You know, like, when someone is like, I don't know the word. I think panic. Like, that, what's worse than panic? Like, pure horror. Yeah, horror, right? That scared me. I was like, dude, that little <laughs> guy gonna kill me. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I got to name the sweep after me, but the sweep is the flower sweep. So I get there and he was able to turn and I capitalized the back. I only scored four points on that one. I think he swept me after that. It was 42. You know, the guy, man, fights for 10 minutes. I was literally holding my own. I was like, nah, you're not going to do anything. I was, <laughs> I was very scared of him going under me. I think yeah. he went under me like twice on that match, and I was able to scramble out, you know, just using a little bit of ability as well. And actually, that competition, I think that's the competition that made me believe I could be a champion. Oh. There's a long story, you know, that I think we need a couple hours to talk right. about it. I have kind of like a very dark two years of my life until oh, wow. I went to 2004, this company 2004, and I moved to Rio because in my mind, I would either quit and go work for my family or I would go into that path. So anyway, there's a lot of stories before that tournament. And then that tournament really like, man, I think I can do this. And then I went to win Worlds like a month or two after that. And that's when I won my first world title. And then I took third in the Open of that same year. You know, I lost to Jacare in the semifinal when Roger broke Jacare's arm. Oh, I yeah. fought Jacare in the semifinal. So that the tournament was like a device of the waters, you know what I mean? Because that made me like, man, I'm trained. I think I can do this, you know what I mean? So that gave me a lot of motivation to go to Worlds because in my mind, if I wasn't going to be a world champion, I don't think I would be here today. Wow, that's amazing. I love hearing those turns in the story, so to speak, your journey, your life, because there's so many pathways you could go, you know? You had an amazing thing, too. I think there's some statistic out there where it's like over 80 of the submissions that you got in competition, 21 by way of armbar, and a distant second would be some sort of chokes off the back around eight or so. There's some kind of basic statistics off of this. I don't know. There's something with the armbar. It's the most readily available submission. Can you go into specifically attacking the arm versus working to the back in the jump. Well, uh, well, the thing about arm locks is about how you create a deceiving moment, mm. right? Like sometimes a choke is right there, like especially choke from the back, it's right there. You put your hands on, choking from the mount, you know, same thing. So 
I think arm lock, it's a lot about, of course, precision. There's all the technical aspects involved in arm lock. But I think a good arm lock does not come with good technique. It comes also with your way to deceive your opponent, right? Mm. When they push a little too harder, when they believe they can push, when they believe they can do things, you know what I mean? So I think like arm lock is a lot of that, you know? And also your ability to move within transitions, right? So a lot mm -hmm. of arm locks are taken to transitions, like someone pushes you off the mound. It's not like a, a lot of times it's not like I'm going to grab your arm and I'm going to take it. I'm going to do this. Yeah. It usually comes from some sort of like exposure. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I think I was very good on capitalizing people's exposure, their gotcha. mistakes more than anything. It's very hard for you to like, I'm going to grab this arm. I'm going to climb yeah. the arm. Yeah. I'm going to take it. You know, it's very difficult. But I think the main thing was my ability to be dangerous. You know, I think like the biggest thing that people don't get about my game is how dangerous my submissions are. Because I'm not really much of a point-oriented guard, for example, like my hand the collar, right? I'm always attacking the neck. For you to defend your neck, you have to put your hands on me, you know? And that's when I start to use my flexibility, my agility to set up traps until you expose yourself. So I think having a good choke, you know, have good hip movement is very important. And trust, you know, once you see it, you got to take it, you know, you just yeah. got to go for it. <laughs> That's my arm. <laughs> and speaking of movement, especially, yeah, you with Rafael Lovato Jr., you both are really linked up with Cameron Shane, who I had on the show. The importance of movement specifically. I mean, obviously you have your jujitsu techniques, but just your body movement, not being so rigid, get your full range of motion. You even have a BJJ Fanatics with Cameron mm -hmm. Shane on that. I have. Can you go into the importance of movement and when do you start really focusing on that? Well, for me, movement really made me realize what I did in jiu-jitsu. So my first contact with movement was through yoga, right? Mm -hmm. Like right away, I was 18 years old. First time I did a yoga class. And like, I don't train jiu-jitsu. I am jiu-jitsu, right? right? So everything I do in life, I kind of like make an analogy. And I remember doing yoga, the aspects of yoga, for example, which are static for me, like, man, I'm so uncomfortable here. Look like, you know, like in a twist choke. You know what I mean? And just like those positions and those poses, right? And the way you had to find comfort within that uncomfortableness. So I think that really made me realize, oh my God, this is amazing. And then the first contact with any sort of movement was with Alvaro Romano, right? So yes. I did a lot of work with Alvaro. Amazing. He did a lot of my conditioning, you know, my complementary conditioning with movement, stretching and things like that. And right away, as I'm doing the physical movement, I can adapt to Jiu-Jitsu. For example, we have the Tiger routine in our system of six blades, which are movements from Ginástica Natural, oh, you know. Cool. But the thing about Ginástica Natural, it's very fitness, right? Because mm -hmm. they had the animal movements, right? The patterns, but wasn't really much explored. And I loved it. Because for me, movement is an honest expression of yourself, right? It's a quality. How do you express yourself, right? Usually I say that rigidity is like a masculine attribute, like rigid, right? Yeah. And flow, be more flow and more artistic, it's more of like a female attribute, right? The beauty, like martial arts, right? Martial, the rigid, the art, the more of the philosophy behind so I like to play with like, you know, the dilemmas and the analogies, right? But then Cameron approached Raphael and Raphael knows I'm a big mover. I love movement. 
all the warm-ups that we do, it's movement. There's not like, we don't do like jumping jacks. No, we, we flow, right? And then Rafael said, man, look at this guy. And I looked at him right away. I was like, oh my God, this yeah. guy moves so beautifully. You know, like I said, he expressed himself through movement very beautifully. I remember when Rafael met him, and he's like, man, you're going to love this guy. He's just like you. You know, he's a little older dude. He's funny. He's intelligent and all of that. He's Cameron, like people don't know him. He's a very eccentric human being. Yeah. But that guy is so smart. If I ever have something in my life that I feel I have an issue, I call him. He's always available for me. He reads a lot. He has his opinion, but like he respects everyone's opinions and diversities. So anyway, and we actually did a session over the phone. Oh. Like, hey, let's do a FaceTime. Let's talk. Let's meet each other. I'm in love with you already, you know? <laughs> and right away, which was funny because I was teaching a class that week and I was explaining to my students the importance of the contact of your foot on the ground, right? You know how people sometimes bump and they took their foot off the ground and they move, you know what I mean? Like they lose yeah. the connection. And I remember when we start to warm up and of course, Cameron always kind of go through, through the motions. And he's like, yeah, man, feel the ground. Don't lose connection to the ground. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Is this guy talking this? <laughs> and, and right away when he's showing me the positions, again, not just the movement, but the expression of the movement that he was showing me. I was like, that's my jiu-jitsu. <laughs> wow. I'm like, is this guy, is he, is he crazy? Like, it's just stuff, you know, like we do like the sidewinders, the movement on the ground, like it, my system with the diamond concept, yeah. staying elegant, you know, the sidewinders moving the spirals. And that's until when I went to a teacher training and we actually got to spend a lot of time together. That's when we like, we spent literally one week, like he would show a movement. Dude, I have 55 techniques <laughs> that that thing right there would teach us how to do it. So the way I see mobility and movement, same as jiu-jitsu, right? Again, going back to what we're talking about training jiu-jitsu, it's not the quantity, but the quality. Mm. So it's the quality of your repetition. It's the quality of your movement. Not just that, but the intention that you put in on your movement. Until it becomes part of you, it becomes just natural. Right? So I think with Budokon, the idea of Budokon is that it's a creation from Cameron to complement the physical attributes of martial arts. He didn't build his yoga to yogis. He built his yoga to martial arts. Right, right. Like the, the Budokon yoga, if you listen to him and Elaine going through the movement, the double block, grabbing the dagger, stabbing the dagger, the warrior, you know, it's so beautiful because he constructed yoga to help him with his Kung Fu, right? Because he comes from traditional martial arts. But one thing that I think Rafael and I collaborated with him because he didn't have anything with mobility because the traditional martial art, they're very linear, right? They're very movement-oriented. Right. They don't really interchange so much. That's when I start to open his eyes to like the crawling, like the crawling patterns, right? The crawling locomotions, like, you know, the, the gorillas, the chimpanzees, the Komodo dragon. Like my best pass is Komodo dragon pattern. So 
Budokan will give you two things. You give you movement intelligence, which means your body understands patterns of movement. And the second is your quality of your movement. How can you move with fluidity? How can you move with intention? How can you find, you know, the openings of the movement? And not just that. Sometimes when you actually apply a technique with someone else, you need to understand where the path of least resistance is yeah. to move them into your position. So in a way, which is interesting that the other day I was thinking about, the path of a movement to take you out of a situation, it could be the same path to put you in a situation. You know what I mean? So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people just fool people, but like you need to understand the direction of movement where there's least resistance. It, it's amazing. You just become more intelligent. I believe 100% that our body is an antenna, right? We acquire technology through and data to repetition, to moving properly because and it goes back to what we we're talking in the beginning about quality of training. If you train a lot with a lot not qualified movement, you just giving your body bad technology, you know? But if you can keep quality and of course, the best case scenario is quality, quantity, and intensity. Right. And that's great. That you know is I mean? great. But it's very hard because you have to always, something I was going to give. You know what I mean? It's your conditioning, mm. it's your movement, it's your quality. And people sometimes when I train, when I'm on my zone, it's all Budokan, but I have a person on me. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. beautiful. It's something that, you know, going to give a lot of longevity to a lot of our competitors. I always explain them with the eyes of mobility as well. So mm -hmm. it's, it benefits everybody. That's amazing. Yeah, get that free movement. Like I said, that's on BGD Fanatics. I have that, uh, Budokan. It's it's an amazing thing for everybody. Uh, to also, check out. we have the uh, Budokan online. I did mm -hmm. a project. It's called the Blueprint of Shanji Ribeiro. So mm -hmm. I teach my game through the eyes of mobility. So we show a mobility movement, and then I show a technique on the top of it, why the technique happens the way it does. Um, is that on your website or no, it's Budokon online? Okay, so gotcha. we have a we have a product there and the blueprint. You can go there. There's like 90 techniques. It's super cool. Well, it's fun too because when Saul and I created the philosophy of flow pressure finish, yes. So pretty much the flow is the bottom game, right? Be able to use mobility to get into places to be able to do techniques. Pressure is more of a top game where I use a lot of the crawling patterns to apply pressure. You know what I mean? And finish is the conjunction of everything. If I have good mobility and I have good crawling patterns, means I have flexibility, I have agility, and I show a lot of submissions. It's super fun. Can you just kind of explain to people real quick about your diamond concept? You did it the last time we talked, but I like everybody on this podcast to check that out. Well, the diamond concept became because I trained with Saulo, right? Yeah. So easy, pressure. Yeah. Pressure creates diamonds, right? So I'm not saying that I'm a diamond, but I'd say I got lapidated like one. So in theory, I felt to myself, what can I do so Saulo don't pass my guard, right? So for me, it was pretty simple. I'll keep my knees and elbows together, you know what I mean? And then see if he doesn't pass, you know, and then start to work so then i used to call like i actually first called the armadillo if you have a problem turn into an armadillo boom you know and connected right 
but the name Diamond Concept wasn't there. I called, hey, the Armadillo, the Armadillo, boom, boom, boom. And that's when I started to understand how I use my shield, right? How I insert the shield and how the shield is so important in my game. You know, and then with time, it's just teaching, you know, and then also understanding distance. I say, guys, when you want the pressure, you got to become the diamond. You know what I mean? It's just create a philosophy behind it, right? More than anything. The name also, we had like the Jay-Z tour, the diamond thing. Oh, and it's yeah. okay. Someone get close to you, just, just do the diamond, you know, and <laughs> boom. And that's kind of how it started, you know what I mean? And then, of course, in the end, you see diamonds and everything, you know? Like, if you connect your knees and elbows and put them together, it's like the diamond card, you know, like a yeah. losango. A losango is also a diamond of cards, right? So, yeah, and then you start to see a lot of, like, forms, you know? So, now, finish the idea, which after a while I develop, is like a diamond, right? What makes a diamond valuable? The clarity and the shapes, right? When you look at them, the forms inside the diamonds, they're perfect. It's just like jujitsu. If your form is perfect, your technique is more valuable. So that's mm. where it goes. So as much as the structure of your technique has the right angles, the right connections, then become stronger, therefore more valuable. I think that's how it started. And I use the same idea, you know, like the vortex, you know, connections from the top within ourselves and with our opponent. It's a broader thing. But in general, that's how the idea of the concept started. You know, how can I find connections within myself to create structures that will create better leverage? In the end, that's what you're looking for. We're looking for leverage. Yeah. You know what I mean? And leverage is attained by closest to perfection of shapes and forms. And then yeah. once you can attain that, and then the second part is movement, fluidity, right? right? Like clarity of movement. So if you look to a diamond, they're clear. In our case, is our movement after a structure that allows you to extend pressure is set? Is your movement clear to a next structure, to a next structure, to a next structure? You know what I mean? And then yeah. it goes. And of course... When you apply diamond from the top, they cut. They yeah, cut very that's sharp. That's true. So that's the part that uh, I'm hiding. I'm going to okay. just to <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I, I always love that concept. That's absolutely amazing. Helped so much. One area I don't think we've ever really touched on as much is when you did MMA. Now, obviously, when you go into mixed martial arts, there's more than just grappling. There's kicking, punching, you know, all sorts of slams, all the good stuff. Outside of the obvious that there's more to worry about and focus on when you train and fight in MMA, your biggest mental shift competitively approaching that. What was that for you from like jujitsu competition to MMA? Well, like, first of all, is the skill development, right? Mm -hmm. The way it started was I was supposed to, you know, I just fought Hodger. I beat Hodger and then people saw like, ah, whatever. And then people are like, oh, he's aggressive. Let's put him to fight. So then I got, you know, I always trained Taparia in Brazil. We always trained mm. Valitudo, Sungas, you know, bare knuckles. We always did that, right? But I never really trained a lot of, like, you know, other attributes for me to do. My biggest mistake was to train to fight. That was my biggest, mm. because now I'm like, oh, shit, I got to get my hands better. I got to get my striking better. I got to get all this better. Oh. And I think that was my biggest mistake because I focused so much in training, striking, 
that my conditioning for grappling was off in both of my fights, right? My second mm -hmm. fight, actually, I got sick, so I'm not going to go into that. But my first fight, I remember, yeah, I'm in shape, but I start like, grapple my guys. I'm like, why am I getting tired grappling? Because I didn't train enough grappling. Okay, yeah. In my, in my mind, I'm like, oh, okay, grappling is okay. No, you still got to put a lot of effort on that. It was a great experience. Japan treated me very well. I was very high paid. That's one thing that I can say. I got paid really well for my first two fights. Nice. You know what I mean? They treat me like, you know, the new Hicks or whatever. Until they actually wanted me to fight Roger. I'm like, no, I'm not going to fight Roger. If I fight Roger, that's going to kill the Jiu-Jitsu world. I have nothing against him. Yeah. If we had an issue, maybe. But I never had an issue with Roger. I love Roger. You know what I mean? And he's like, oh, would you fire Roger Grace? I'm like, bro, he's six foot four. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, I just started. Like, don't, don't, don't give this bullshit. And, that, and that's what happened. So I had my first fight. I knocked the guy out like crazy. Yeah. It was a TKO. Again, one minute 30. I'm super tired. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to die here. So I just <laughs> threw a bunch of crazy punches and knee, and the guy dropped it. You know, big cut. You're like, Whew. People yeah. are like, oh, shit, you are a shitty grappler. I'm like, and I, and I have to say, say, bro, if I wanted to grapple people, I want to stay in jiu-jitsu. I want to punch people. You're right. <laughs> so that was my excuse. You know, and then the uh -huh. second fight was pretty good. I had a better camp, but still not enough time to really get my body like I can move, right? Everything was very yeah. mechanic. Hmm. And the guy that I fought was super experienced. The guy had like 61 fights. Oh, my goodness. The guy had victories over like a lot of Kevin Jackson. The guy had a lot of good victories, like Chael Sonnen and all this. The guy, wow. really strong Japanese guy. Yeah, and a southpaw. Right? Yeah. And, they're, and they both were southpaw. So oh. that sucked bad for me because now I'm fighting two southpaws. It's yeah. hard to fight already, but two southpaws, shit. So again, first round was good. Second round, I'm tired. Third round, I'm like, shit, now I got to go after the guy. And then yeah. we start going crazy. Boom, 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 boom. He caught me on the way out. So that, I, I kind of I give myself a little credit to be smart on that one because I'm moving out and he punched it, but like it just kind of hit me. But the way my body reacted, like I kind of like just kind of wobbly a little. Like I just did this. Like I don't know why I did it. But it just, it looked like I got caught. And then he comes like, I'm like, okay, okay, come, come, come. And he comes in, I throw him, and then he drops. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that was an amazing experience. And then, um, and then what happened was Bellator was starting to oh, yeah. pick up. And I was supposed to fight the middleweight Grand Prix. For that show, I was in really good shape. I was sparring. I was boxing already. I was doing a lot of boxing because I already had. I already have a Muay Thai background. My kicks are okay, but my footwork kind of sucks. So I was really good. I had this boxing coach. I was sparring really good. My connections between. I was in super good shape because it was an event. I had three fights, and then if I win, I would fight Hector Lombard, which was the champ at the time. So then what happened was the guy kind of like mess it up my contract because they had the first contract and now they put half of the money for the champion I'm like what are you doing yeah. plus my manager kind of like was a little shady on that thing and what happened was if i end up losing i would get locked in a contract that i'll say bro i make more money than that in a two-hour seminar like it yeah. makes no sense for me you know i'm gonna bring a huge following like, I'm valuable. I'm a world champion. You don't have no world champions in your, in your thing. 
And the guy just like, ah, oh, whatever. If you want, you want, you don't take it. I said, man, I'm not a bitch. I'm gonna go my own way. So we call the guys, which is funny because and then they got Shimonenko, Alexander Shimonenko. Shimonenko oh. ended up winning the show, you know, which was cool about that. So, okay, at least my stunt double won, and the guy's name is Alexander too. Yeah. And then I'm in super duper shape, and I'm sitting at home doing nothing. What I did, I put the gi on and did worlds, and then <laughs> I took second at worlds. And then I fought Bernardo in the final, and he beat me. And then uh, that's when I'm like, ah, no more MMA. I'm just going to go. So no frustration yeah, on that. Yeah. We still coached. Uh, I, I co we coached Diego Sanchez all the way to the title fight. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. I helped uh, Damian Maia for his fight with Anderson Silva. And, of course, my, you know, my frustration, which I never had, came with Rafael winning the Bellator title over Musasi. So I was never a champion in MMA, and I think I did okay. I made good money, but that was enough. But I got to live my dream through Rafael, and I'm totally proud and happy. Yeah, that. yeah absolutely amazing. What are your future goals? I know you got six plays jujitsu. You got the other things going on. What are your future goals from now moving forward? Well, pretty much just, like I said, building my skills as an entrepreneur, understanding how to create more things. I'm a big creator. I like yeah. creating things. There's a lot of work, a lot of base work with Six Blades as far as like the business and development of like digital marketing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to Europe. I'm going to Asia, you know, to set up the understanding of the cultural businesses. There's a couple of schools there, you know, because of pandemic, they're still picking up. There's still schools that has to be rebranded to the new brand. So I'm, like I said, I'm, for me, I'm just focused on that, support the team. And eventually in a couple of years, figure out, we call it Brazil Trabalho de Base, you know, the, the base work with like blue belts and white belts, you okay. know, which they want to compete. But my number one purpose now is definitely build schools. We have a lot of projects, like we have, you know, a couple of schools in Texas and all over the world, you know, make sure there's a quality product, that is a quality understanding of Jiu-Jitsu being taught, being passed, you know, not this crazy mayhem that people do really through martial arts and not just martial arts and be, like I said, boring and traditional, but like just being good humans, you know? Yeah. Be able to do that. I think jujitsu, it's in a high now. We like, you know, Elon Musk and Zuckerberg, they're talking about fighting uh, all that. So, who do you got? Who do you got? Um, eh. they, I don't think they're going to fight. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a good thing. You know, at least they're talking about jujitsu. Now you see they, you know, yeah. they it's do everywhere. Things. Yeah, it's everywhere. So for us, it's really good because it creates uh, interest, right, in jujitsu. Mm -hmm more than anything. So kind of like ride the wave and try to build that, build more students in my school with like retreats, experiences. I do cruises yeah. with the guys. Oh, I love awesome. teaching cruises. You know, we do the Fuji cruise in December again. I just did the grapples escape in June. Every summer I do the champ camp in Montana with the Budokan. I have a surf yeah. jiu-jitsu in Panama. I have hey. another retreat. So I love retreats. You know, for me, it's changing from seminars to experiences, you know, just learning learning from who I can, teach what I can, and enjoy life and build good citizens. And I can't let you go without this one thing I just remembered. Going to your logo, because it's such an interesting concept, going to the logo and the meaning of it. Yeah, so pretty much the logo was created by one of our artists in Brazil like 20 years ago. And uh, Saul and I, we always liked the idea of the Bushido, right? Like the way the yeah. Bushido, the owner system, right? So Bushido is the owner system within the cast of samurais, right? So it doesn't matter which samurai you were, you always follow the Bushido. 
right? So if they go in combat, they honor the combat, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we had that idea and then we're like, oh, like, and, and we didn't have a name for that. People call it pinwheel and, <laughs> and what that. And I say, okay, so what do you think? And then Saul and I, one day just sat down, we're like, okay, what make you and I? Like, let's talk about what we're creating, family first, you know, like being the family, because him and I, you know, being a family, like it or not, we're blood, you yeah. know, respect one another, honor your name, honor your word, be a man of honor, you know, have loyalty to your principles, have the positive attitude to do all of that. And the number one is discipline. Discipline involves dedication, determination, because you can't be dedicated or determined if you're not disciplined. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So you can't have motivation if you're not disciplined. So discipline is, is the base. So family first, discipline the base, respect one another, do to others what would like to be done to you, honor your word, honor your principles, honor your name that your mom and dad gave to you. Loyalty, people think about loyalty about this, this person, okay? Loyalty is about the principles. What principles do we share? What have we shared and now we're loyal to it? What our loyalty is based on? Mm. Attitude, for sure, we see the world is having an attitude problem where there's victimism, people that are self-entitled about things, you know what I mean? And no matter, the problem with a lot of problems is your attitude towards it. You know, it's not the problem itself. Yeah. So having a positive attitude to the challenge of life, loyal to the principles and the discipline to do what's right and truthful, even when no one is watching. I'd love that. Those are all words to live by, man. Really, really amazing. Well, Sanji, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show, man. Uh, thank you, brother. I look forward to the future things you do and have you on the show again, of course. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.